So I want to start with a question. In what ways are you thankful? For most of us, giving thanks is not, a, is not isolated to Thanksgiving dinners. No, it's a regular occurrence in our lives. We give thanks constantly to the Lord in various different ways. So think about it with me. In what ways are you thankful? Well, I think for parents in here, at least to start, we'll be very thankful if our kids don't melt down during the service and cause a disruption. Can I get an amen on that? Very thankful. Also, we regularly give thanks before our meals, thanking the Lord for His provision. We thank the Lord when our mortgage gets approved or a paycheck comes in or our engine clicks after stalling for a couple seconds. We get selected for that job or we get asked out on that date. Or finally, we receive a healthy report from our doctor like a negative result from a COVID test. All these and many more are ways in which we give thankful thanksgiving to the Lord. In his book, Praying with Paul, D.A. Carson makes this profound point that the majority of our thanksgiving is tied to our material wealth and comfort. This is what he says in his book. And I was really convicted by this quote. He said, The unvarnished truth is that we, what we most frank, frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. I'll read that again. The unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. He's saying what we commonly give thanks for acts like a mirror that reflects what we care about the most. I don't think D.A. Carson is saying that we shouldn't thank the Lord for our well-being and our comfort. No, I think he's just saying that the content of our thanksgiving reveals what we most highly value. And as, as I think about this quote, it's really indicting to me and maybe you. I feel like most of us, when we think about the content of our thanksgiving, nonetheless, when we gaze at Paul's epistle like Colossians, we see this man who abounds in thanksgiving for things like conversion and fruit and evangelism and faithful pastors. It seems that Paul's thanksgiving truly reflects what he values the most. So we're going to see this morning in Colossians 1, 1 through 8, three things pertaining to Paul that he's thankful for, which is specifically the gospel. And so these are our three points this morning, coming straight from the text. Gospel members, the gospel message, and gospel ministers. These things pertaining to the gospel is something that Paul most highly values. The gospel um, members, the gospel message, and gospel ministers. So we're going to be in Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who were faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. 
You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard of it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. So look with me at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You see, most commentators believe that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter chained to a prison cell in Rome. He refers to Aristarchus in chapter 4 as a fellow prisoner, and his benediction of the letter reads, Remember my chains, grace be with you. It's interesting to note that Paul did not travel to Colossae to help plant this church like he did the Philippian church or the Thessalonica church. Paul is writing to a congregation that he's actually never met. But his introduction, identifying himself as an apostle who speaks on Christ's authority, sets the whole tone of this letter. This isn't your regular missionary letter. This is a man called and empowered by Christ to carry out his divine work that only few were chosen for. So you might be wondering, all right, Bryce, well, who planted this church? Well, it was Epaphras that planted this church. You see, Epaphras probably heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus. You can see Acts 19 for that account. And so then he comes to Colossae to herald this good news. And now you might be thinking to yourself, well, how did Paul hear about it? Well, it was actually Epaphras too that came to bring him the good news about the congregation. Epaphras seemed to be close with Paul because we read in Philemon 23 that Epaphras spent time with Paul in prison. So Epaphras apparently traveled to Rome to bring Paul the news about this church, and Paul pins this epistle to encourage and warn the church of Colossae. You see, he warns the church mostly about this philosophy apparently threatening the Colossian congregation. We're not actually sure what this philosophy or false teaching was that was threatening the peace, stability, and unity of the church, but many commentators think it was a mixture of beliefs. It was a type of syncretism. And so Paul pins this glorious letter to the church that he has never met for the purpose that he might encourage them and warn them about the false teaching. And this letter of encouragement comes to the congregation from two men, Tychicus and Onesimus. And right out of the gate, this congregation is met by Paul's glorious prayer of thanksgiving, bringing them back to where they first started, the gospel. And so that brings us to our first point this morning, gospel members. Glance with me at verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Remember the context. Paul has never met this congregation and yet he still says we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I might have been struck by this little phrase in my meditation more than any other. Paul regularly prays for a church that he has never met while in prison. If I was in prison, 
I would certainly be praying that the Lord would get me out of prison. I'd probably be praying for my home church, NBC, but I just do not think I would be praying for other churches. And you might be wondering, well, Bryce, why do you say that? Well, sadly, the reality is I don't find myself today in my quiet time regularly praying for other churches. But we see Paul doing this because this is his heart. This is something that he most highly values. He's not just concerned with the gospel work that he personally pioneered. No, he cares about all gospel work everywhere. And that shows in the way that he regularly plays for churches that he's never even met. And I was trying to think. It was like, man, what's a great modern example of this? And I had this aha moment and I thought, our pastors Joshua and John, each and every Sunday during the pastoral prayer, they get up and they pray for dozens of churches throughout Memphis. Many of these churches that they never visited. Why is that? Because they care about all gospel work. That's what they value. And it's a great example to our body and something to emulate. All right, so now we come to the question, what exactly... What exactly is Paul thanking the congregate or what is Paul thanking God for concerning this congregation? Well, he starts by thanking the Lord for gospel members, a congregation that has been saved by the gospel and are evidently displaying the gospel to the watching world. So look at look at verse four with me. For we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. If you write in your Bibles like I do, immediately upon reading this verse, I circled faith, love, and hope. And then I brought my coffee cup really close to my Bible, and I got my phone out and took a picture and put it on Instagram for all my followers. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. That's a joke. But Paul frequently talks about faith, love, and hope. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says this, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3 we read, We recall of your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. You see, these qualities, faith, love, and hope, signal to the world the work of God in a Christian. I want to quickly point out that thanking God for their faith, love, and hope implicitly implies that He gives God the credit for their conversion and their sanctification. He isn't thanking the Colossian congregation for picking themselves up by their bootstraps that produced in salvation. No, He's praising God for the gift of faith that God has given them. And He's praising God for the love that He's poured out on them and the hope that He has reserved for them in heaven. Paul is thanking God for the work that only he can do. And this is evidenced by their faith, hope, and love. And so we're going to take a magnifying glass to each one of these characteristics. He first thanks the Father for their faith in Christ. And this faith isn't something that was conjured up by the congregation. No, again, this is the consequence of the work of God. And this faith is more than just mental assent or belief in who Jesus is. We read in James 2 that the demons believe and shudder. No, this is mental assent, but it's so much more. This faith is a wholehearted trust for what Christ has done and what He promises that He will do. It's an absolute daily dependence that changes the very fabric of our lives. It's a specific faith. 
And Paul thanks the Father for their wholehearted trust in Jesus Christ. And we know that we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Our faith expresses itself in how we live. And that's why Paul goes on to thank the Lord that the Colossians' faith is proven by their love for all the saints. You see, the Colossian congregation is known for their love. Glance down with me at verse 8. Paul mentions that Epaphras told him about their love in the Spirit. Twice we see in this short passage Paul mentioning the Colossians' love for one another. It's like he wants to emphasize this characteristic above everything else. This congregation was known for their love. A commentary that I read was very helpful. It said this, The focus is not extensive, every single Christian everywhere, but intense, every Christian that comes across their path. He's specifically speaking to the Colossians and their love for one another, their love for the people in their own congregation. This isn't to say that we don't love Christians everywhere. No, but since we've coveted with a specific people, our love should be uniquely displayed in our local church. And so Paul thanks the Lord that this love is certainly on display for all to see. And so I want to say this. If you're visiting us this morning, welcome. And you're a Christian, we praise God that you're here. You may or may not know this, but the Christian life is unavoidably connected to the local congregation. You see, all throughout the New Testament, we see verses that command us to love one another. And this command assumes a deep and abiding relationship with one another. It seems almost impossible to walk out this this love one another command in any meaningful way apart from membership. And if I'm right in this assumption, then brother and sister, the application for you this morning is to join a local church. And you can join via here or somewhere else. My prayer for you is that you would be a meaningful member at a church that is known for their love. And lastly, members at NBC, I want to ask you a question this morning. Are we known for our love for one another? I guess a better way to ask this question would be this. Would people describe you as a loving person? Being known for our love inevitably starts with us as individual members loving one another. Again, it's not so much this extensive love, every Christian everywhere, but it's this intense love for one another, people whom we're rubbing shoulders with. And so, I just I want to ask the question, how can we be known for this intense love towards one another? I, just, I heard a story this week about a sweet sister who brought coffee to a mom after the service because she had just a tough time with her kids, and she spent a couple hours just encouraging this sister on a Sunday afternoon. It's like, how amazing is that? Just loving one another. And that's not it. It's that's happening all day, every day with members at NBC. I've seen single ladies sacrifice to help mom during the service care for their kids. I've seen different members come early to help sanitize the seats to keep this place COVID free. Or people readily offering their furniture to newlyweds or people who are just getting married. And lastly, you guys made a huge impact on Kelsey and me when you brought us food when DA was born. Many of you we didn't even know. 
but you guys were quick to show your love for one another. And I praise God for that. I pray that we would continue to be known by our love, that this would be our overarching desire to love one another for all our days. All right, so lastly, Paul thanks the Father for the hope reserved for them in heaven. I don't know if you caught this at first glance, but look at the word because. Let's stare at that word. Some translations say for, others say which come from. You see, if we were betting people, and we're obviously not betting people because we're good Baptist people, but if we were good betting people, we would then, we would, we would think about this text and think, all right, I would assume that the faith and the love produce the hope. Right? Faith and love should produce hope, and Paul talks about that elsewhere. But right here in Colossians 1, it's actually the exact opposite. No, a guaranteed hope is the source of faith and love. The Colossians' faith and love are rooted in their hope. You might not know this about Kelsey and me, but we love to go out to restaurants. Like, we just love it. We love to go out to nice restaurants. It's like you go there. It's a great atmosphere. You don't have to do the dishes. It's a win-win. It's awesome. And so we love it, but we seldom get to go, uh, partially because we have young kids. And another reason, it's pretty expensive. And so we love to eat a steak or fish or juicy pork chop, but we just don't get to do it that often. But sometimes we do get to do it when we're with our parents. I know some of the young adults in here are amening me, and you've experienced that. It's like, sometimes we're like, hey, why don't we go to this meal? Why don't we go out tonight? And they're like, okay. And then they got the check. But <laughs> one of those times that Kelsey and I um, recently got to go out, we were in Florida with my father. And we kept throwing out, hey, why don't we go eat at this restaurant? Why don't we go eat this nice meal? You know, just kind of throwing it out. And finally, like, Three days before we left, my father said, yeah, let's do it. And Kelsey and I were pumped. We were so pumped that we didn't even eat lunch that day. It's like we were saying, all right, we're going to prepare for this meal that's about to come. I want to say that we were super spiritual and we were fasting, but that wasn't it at all. We were just getting ready for this meal to come. But Henry, Henry didn't really understand our game plan. That's our two-year-old. He didn't really get what we were doing because he would constantly come up to us and say, cracker berry popsicle and i'm thinking henry that's a very nutritional meal but no a steak is about to come your way something so much better is coming we would explain that to him but then he would come back up and you'd never guess what he said cracker berry popsicle you see kelsey and i's understanding about what's to come changed what we did that day but for Henry, his lack of understanding, it did not change anything. He just didn't understand that something so much better was to come. And I want to make this point that I think a lot of us, including me, are like Henry when it comes to the hope we have reserved in heaven. We have this deficient understanding of eschatology, of what's to come, and that could be a, the very reason why our faith in Christ and our love for the saints are waning right now. Christians in here, let me remind you that something so much better is coming. And I'm not even saying that everything is bad right now. There's a lot of great things that are happening. Take this gathering, for instance. But even the glories of this gathering will not compare to when we gather around the throne of God and worship the Lamb of God. 
Christians, something so much better is coming. And how do we know that? Because God's Word proclaims it. Look at the text. We have a hope reserved in heaven. The banks might crash. The dollar might go to nothing. Our portfolios might dwindle. Our health might leave us. Nothing on this earth is a sure thing. Yet I hope our hope is a sure thing because it is kept in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy it. It's kept in the very place where the King of kings and the Lord of lords dwells. And Jesus promises that He will go prepare a place for us and He will come and return. And so you might be asking, well, what is our hope specifically? Well, Paul doesn't explicitly say, but I think he's alluding to the totality of eternal life, the glorious future that Christ has established for all believers, mainly that we will see Jesus and be like him. Paul says this hope is reserved in heaven. It's a guarantee. And this guarantee, understanding this, changes the way we live. It, cha- it, it bolsters our faith in Christ and the love we have for the saints. So Christian, do you have a deficient understanding of eschatology of what's to come? If you do, I would just encourage you to study God's Word. When you're reading through it, kind of mark to the side. This is what's to come. Understand it. Hide it in your heart. Because again, it truly does produce faith in Christ and love for the saints. And let's be quick to abound in thanksgiving, not for just our present circumstances, but also the future reality that is to come. You see, a greater understanding should lead to a more thankful disposition. All right, so as we continue, Paul abounds in thanksgiving for gospel members, a congregation that has been saved by the gospel and are evidently displaying the gospel to the watching world. And now he turns to thank the Lord for the gospel message that has come to him. Now we come to our second point, the gospel message. Look with me at verse 5. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It's bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard of it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. So from this letter, we know that it was some type of philosophy or false teaching that was plaguing the congregation. Again, we're not exactly sure what this was or the effects of it, but I think that we can assume that the false teaching might have cast doubts on the completeness of Christ's message. The congregation could have easily wondered if Epaphras gave them the whole message of the gospel and if the Apostle Paul had more for them to offer. Did the church hear the reliable and complete apostolic message or was there more for Paul to share? Well, in his thanksgiving about the gospel message, Paul proclaims that the congregation heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel. This might be one of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible. The word of truth, the gospel. A commentary that I read helpfully said this. In the Old Testament, truth often involves the ideas of reliability and authenticity. And this meaning carries over to the New Testament. A word of truth, then, is a word or message that can be relied upon. Paul is saying, listen to me here, that this gospel message, that we were created in God's image, Yet we have sinned against God, and one sin against a 
Holy God deserves infinite death. But Jesus Christ came and He lived the life that we could not live and He died the death that we deserve. He hung on a cross taking the wrath of God on His shoulders. The wrath that was due to God's people? No, God's people will not experience this because Jesus Christ took that wrath on Himself. And He died on that cross. And three days later, He rose from the grave and He ascended into heaven and He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And everyone who repents and believes in Jesus will be saved. They will be made right with God. This is the gospel message which came to the Colossians through Epaphras, the word of truth that can be relied upon. And so consequently, the philosophy and the false teaching that was invading the Colossians, it's ultimately wrong. It's not the gospel. It's not the word of truth, and it cannot be trusted. I heard this clip of David Platt. He was at a conference, and he said this. He said, going into another country, telling people that their gods are false, and you must trust in the God of the Bible that I proclaim, kind of initially, right, if you first think about it, might sound a little brash and a little arrogant. But he goes on to say in his talk, but if the message is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it's inconceivable for us not to go proclaim the only way to heaven. It's not brash and it's not arrogant if it's true. And so sharing this gospel, the word of truth, is the most loving thing that you can do to your unbelieving friends. This gospel is a true message coming from God, which he uses to save sinners like you and me. And I want to speak for a moment to anyone in here who identifies himself as not being a Christian. You may or may not know this, but Jesus and Paul, all the other apostles, they make some radical claims in the New Testament. Jesus can say things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Peter can say, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which people must be saved. We as Christians, we herald, we unashamedly herald the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus truly is our only hope in life and death. And I want to say this isn't a relativistic truth. It's not like this truth is for us and you might have this other truth. No, this is an objective truth. And every single person will be accountable for how they respond to this truth. But this is what I want to tell you. This truth is for you. Today is the day of salvation. You can repent and believe in Jesus today. And I want to encourage you to grab a member after the service and talk to him. Talk about what it means to be a Christian. All right, we can look back at the text. Paul reassures the church that they have heard of this reliable gospel message. And it's not only them, but the power of the gospel message has reached the whole world. Look at verse 6. He says, The gospel that has come to you is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You see, Paul testifies to the gospel's universality, all people everywhere, and its effectiveness. So he's saying the gospel is going to all tribes, all people, and all nations. It's not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. And it's effective. 
it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. It kind of reminds me when Paul was in Corinth when he was preaching the gospel there, and he was having a hard time, and then the Lord came to him in a vision and said this. He said, keep preaching, this is paraphrased, but he said, keep preaching the gospel, for I have people in this city. The gospel that you preach, it will bear fruit. It is effective. And so Paul can still have this great joy and thankfulness sitting in a prison cell, but because his great desire is to see Christ magnified throughout the nations, and this is coming true right before his very eyes. And so, as a congregation, NBC, I pray that we would have this exact same desire, that the gospel would go forth, that we would be excited to hear about gospel news and quick to share the gospel message. If this is one of our great desires, well, then it will certainly reveal itself in our thanksgiving let this be so for us. And so, we've seen Paul abound in thanksgiving for the Colossians' salvation, and we've seen him abound in thanksgiving for the gospel, the word of truth going forth to all nations. So finally, to end the prayer of thanksgiving, he commends Epaphras, a faithful gospel minister. And so we come to our very last point, a gospel minister in verses 7 through 8. And so Paul overflows with thanksgiving for Epaphras, who had pioneered the church of Colossae by bringing the good news of the gospel. It seems like it wasn't just Colossae, but the whole Lycus Valley. Because in Colossians 4.13 we read, For I testify about him, Epaphras, that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for all those in Heropolis. It seems like Epaphras had his hands in planting many different churches in the area. And remember that Epaphras probably heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus, and then that brought him to the Colossians, to Colossae. And so, in this text, in verse 7, stare with me at the word learned. Maybe you underline that, maybe you circle it, or do whatever, but let's stare at this word, learn. Paul knows that the gospel can only bear fruit when people faithfully proclaim it to others. Yes, they must get the message right, that's Galatians 1, but they also must speak the gospel. This seems like an obvious inference, yet I had a, I've had numerous conversations with people, even in ministry, that say the exact opposite. It was probably three years ago, and I was at a lunch with somebody who was a minister at a church in Memphis, and they had just gone on this short-term mission trip. And so I was talking, and I was excited for them, and I was asking, well, how did the gospel proclamation go? Were they receptive to the gospel? What did it look like when y'all were sharing the gospel? And the person looked at me with like this weird, like, like this weird look and was like, I, I don't really share the gospel. I, I'm, I'm not about sharing it with words. I'm about showing it with my actions. Well, it's the saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I read a quote from Ligon Duncan in a book a couple of days ago. He said, it's like saying, feed the hungry at all times, if necessary, use food. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It's like... If somebody's hunger is only quenched by food and somebody's salvation is only produced by the gospel message being preached going forth. And that's exactly what Epaphras did when the Colossian congregation learned about this hope from him. This text said he was a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf. 
And so in one sense, I want to say that we're all called to be a faithful minister of Christ. Yet in another sense, there's this special office with a special delegated authority to elders or overseers. Those are the same thing. And it seems like Epaphras was an elder, a teacher, leading and shepherding this congregation unto maturity. And Paul's incredibly thankful for this man's hard work towards this congregation. And I'm assuming if this congregation wasn't already, that upon hearing this letter read aloud, they probably were abounding in thanksgiving for Epaphras too, who brought them the gospel. And so, as I was reading this, I was immediately struck with the question, NBC, are we thankful for the elders that the Lord has given us and their hard work in the gospel? And I can say for all of us, yes, absolutely, we are so thankful for them. And then that brought me kind of to the thought process of, well, in what ways can we show that thanksgiving? What are tan tangible ways that we can show thanksgiving to the elders that the Lord has set over us? Well, you guys can probably think of a number of different ways, but I thought of three this morning. Number one, constantly praying for them so we can be interceding for our elders, that they watch out for their life and doctrine, that they're caring and loving their family well, that they are growing in the knowledge and love of Christ. And also, not just interceding, but abounding in thanksgiving to the Lord, because elders are a good gift to the congregation. God gives us that. The, the Holy Spirit places these elders in the congregation for our maturity. And secondly, I think another thing that we can do is we can shoot them a text or email thanking them for specific ways in which the Lord has used them to minister to our souls. It's not that we have to do this. It's not like they need it. But I know it would be really encouraging for them to hear. And I'm sure many of you are already doing those things. And finally, we can do whatever we can to serve these two brothers so that it frees them up to, for them to teach the gospel and pray for the people that the Lord has entrusted them to pray for. And so, again, whatever that might be, just asking them, what can I do to help serve you that it might free you up to preach the gospel and pray? But nevertheless, we are all ministers of Christ, ambassadors for him, given the message of reconciliation to take to the highways and the byways. So I think a good question to talk amongst one another after the service is, what does it look like for me in my certain situation to be a minister of Christ on behalf of others? It probably looks different for moms and single ladies and even single guys. It probably looks different for the working mom or it probably looks different for the guy that's in business or whatever your situation or the nurse. It probably looks different for all of us. So maybe talk amongst yourselves of what does it look for? for us to be a minister of Christ on behalf of others. And in hearing that, it might help us better pray for one another. So I think that's just a good, when you're, you know, at lunch or when you're in the parking lot, it's just a great question to ask one another. All right, so to conclude, we have seen Paul abound in thanksgiving for gospel members the Colossians' salvation and sanctification, the gospel message, its reliability, its universality, and its effectiveness. And lastly, to conclude, he praises the Lord for gospel ministers that go take the gospel to the highways and byways. So I want to land the plane 
where I first started with the question, in what ways are you thankful? Does the content of your prayers of thanksgiving actually betray what you value the most? If this is the case, we might be desiring our material comfort and well-being too much. And maybe, just maybe, we might need to ask the Lord to change our desires so that we, like Paul, might abound in thanksgiving for things like conversion, fruit, evangelism, and faithful ministers, things pertaining to the gospel. You see, my prayer, and this has been my prayer the whole week, that we as a church would desire these things more and more, and this would be reflected in the way that we praise the Lord, that we abound in thanksgiving. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, as your word is good, God, as you have converted us, and in that you are using your word to sanctify us, I pray that we would realize your goodness, that we would realize your manifold blessings, and we would be thankful for it, that we would abound in praise for the gospel going forth and the gospel ministers that you've given us and many different things pertaining to the gospel and to your faithfulness. Father, I pray that our desire would be your word things that you love. In Christ's name, amen.